Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 108. I'm Marie Villado. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. <laughs> and then we dive into it, exploring what works and what doesn't, trying to transform the raw idea into literary gold. Literary gold. The gold mines <laughs> are open, friends. And and I, I've got Marie Billado in the in the co-host chair, the comfy co-host chair. We've upgraded that, by the way, ma'am, just for you. Yeah. It's nice. It's got a warming feature now, and I, I have to tell you, I'm really enjoying that. Shai Thank Hatsu you. massage. If you hit that button on the right, it'll be awesome. Yeah, when I said I was hoping it would come with, with a masseuse, that's not quite what I meant, <laughs> but it, it's a nice attempt. I mean, that's good. Thank All you. Right. Back to the drawing board. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I feel like I was listened to, at least, and that's nice. <laughs> you are always listened to, absolutely, by myself and all of our listeners, by all means. And and another person that will be listened to, I guarantee you, is our guest host, and and do let's not make her wait any longer. Dear friends, coming back from a fabulous, delightful, marvelous uh, 20 minutes with of seven days ago where pearls of wisdom were dropped. It wasn't gold, it was pearls, but it was treasure nonetheless. There was treasure to be found. Uh, please welcome back to the big comfy chair here at the round table, Kelly Robson. Kelly, ma'am, thank you so much. As, and as much as I enjoyed uh, our conversation during the 20 minutes with, I am utterly stoked at the prospect of brainstorming a story with you ma'am thank you so much for making the time oh thank you it's so great to be back on the show and <laughs> my chair is uh very comfy but it's not warm mm. marie how did you get that i think marie stole the guest host chair wait a second <laughs> <laughs> no i didn't at all mm. kelly you got in the mail the chair you were supposed to have you oh, had that's right put it, put it on the guest host jeez louise <laughs> Well, regardless, hopefully the chair is tolerable and we'll, we'll address it during the break and swap the chairs around so that the right person's uh -huh. in the right chair. But but before we do that, Kelly, um, as I mentioned in my in my intro back in the 20 minutes with 2015 was a freaking awesome year for you. Uh, uh, 2016 is, is shaping up uh, pretty much as awesome with, with things building and developing. So I'm really intrigued to know what, what's coming up for you. What's on the, what's on the horizon for Kelly Robson? Uh, uh, regardless with, with your plans, ma'am. Oh, yes. Well, I have a story coming out January 3rd at Tor.com. It is called A Human Stain, Ooh. and it is a lesbian gothic horror story. It is a novelette, about 10,000 words long, and I'm really looking forward to that hitting because it is gross. It's really, really, <laughs> really gross. <laughs> and that excites you because? I don't know. I like gross things. <laughs> See, so are you, are, you, are you angling to move into the horror realm? Is that, is that oh, what I'm reading there? <laughs> well, you know, I have dabbled in horror before as well. Science fiction horror, my story, uh, The Three Resurrections of Jessica Churchill, right. which was in two uh, years' best anthologies this year. Um, is science fiction horror. So, you know, horror is not unknown to me. We can explore that further because really we, we had David Annandale on the show a while back and, and he's a, he studies horror and it's an intriguing uh, uh, 
you, you, I, I, I'm struggling because it's a genre, but it's not. Uh, because yeah. it can uh, uh, infuse and infect so many different uh, other genres so gracefully and seamlessly. Uh, that's intriguing. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. It's um, horror is really hard to do well. I right now I'm drafting a, um, or rather revising a science fiction <laughs> time travel story. Uh, it's actually a very long novella. It's forty thousand words. And um, I can't decide whether hard science fiction or horror is more difficult. I think it might be horror that's more <laughs> difficult because that story just about killed me. Ellen Datlow put me through five revisions before she bought it. Wow. She had faith that I would get it there. And I got to tell you, she earns every single award that she wins because <laughs> she is an amazing editor. She's not prescriptive at all. She just asks the right questions and with the right question she can reveal everything that is wrong with your story it is amazing she's a goddess ringing endorsement for ellen datlow hardly surprising really when you get right down to it (laughs) well it was painful my god it was painful but (laughs) it worked what else is coming up for you kelly well let's see not a lot uh i just put out a story it was actually um it's not a tour.com story but it was um published on tour.com it is a story called the eye of the swan and it is a tie-in story to the cereal box tremontaine serial which is a uh, prequel to ellen kushner's swords point series right uh, that's a lot of fun and that's on tour.com and it was pretty. I was pretty stoked, and they commissioned me to write the story as a promotion for um, for for Serial Box for Tremontaine. Uh, Tremontaine just started its second season, season two, just uh, a week ago. The second episode just came out, and Tremontaine's a lot of fun. It's um, manor punk, and uh, it's yes. all about love and sex and poly sexuality, and uh, it's just it's fantastic. It's great. Uh, so I was really thrilled to be able to write this story, and it's, um, I love anti-heroines. I love bad girls, bad women. Okay. So, uh, so this is, this is my, uh, my bad, bad woman, one of my bad woman stories. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Well, what about conventions? Are you planning on making uh, any convention appearances? going to be at ICFA, the International Conference of the Fantastic in the Arts, in March. Awesome. And uh, yeah, and we went to a lot of conventions this year. We were at World uh, Worldcon. We were at I was at Boscone. Where else were we? My goodness, felt like we were at a convention almost every week. Oh, we were up in Ottawa. At hey. um, yeah, yeah, and that at Astra here in Toronto. Wow. So uh, so yeah, we're taking, taking a, a break. Little, <laughs> little bit of a break, and we've got to uh, build up the savings account. Right. And then we'll be at ICFA in Orlando in March. So it'll oh, be fun. So excellent. that's Alex, Alex Delmonica and me, my wife, Alex. Yes, yes. yes. A, a, a literary force to be reckoned with in her own right. Yes. So awesome. Very cool. I'm, I'll make sure all that gets in the liner notes so people can make with the clicky click. Marie, what about you? What have you got coming up, ma'am? Well, I just came back from Game Hole where we had some fun. Yes. And <laughs> my next one, you know, I'm, I'm winding down my con season and my appearances. I've got one more, uh, Le Salon du Livre de Montréal, 
Um, so if you're in Montreal and you would like to come say hello, I will be there on uh, on the weekend. Uh, so it's like I think the 17th, 18th, 19th of November. And I will be doing a few appearances. I don't have my confirmed schedule yet, but I'll post it up on my website when I do. And it's it's fun. Even if you don't speak French um, and, and you're in Montreal and you want to come check out some really fine books, uh, come on out and say hi. It's going to be great. Awesome. Very cool. That goes in the liner notes as well. Excellent. So, so friends, look for all of that. Uh, guys, here's what I'd like to do now. I'd like to, I'd like to pause for just a moment and and give some podcast airtime to, to some awesome Kickstarter, some some fabulous uh, uh, ebook or project. There's so much amazing stuff happening out in the world. Um, and and if you're doing that, by the way, and and I'm not showcasing your promo, reach out to me, Dave at RoundtablePodcast.com for crying out loud. Let me let me shout from the rooftops the awesomeness that you're creating. I'll be more than happy to run your promo. Uh, but I'd like to do that. And then when we come back, Marie, Kelly, I would love to brainstorm a story with you guys. What do you say? Oh, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so polite. So polite. Yes, please. I Yes, absolutely. We'll make that happen. Please. Yes, you may have a brainstorm, please. Yourself. And so shall you, dear friends. Don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. 2016 marks Pseudopod's 10th Halloween. It's a dead man's party and we have a lot of reasons to celebrate with you. Just about this time in 2013, we were weeks from shutting our doors and turning the lights off. Thanks to our donors and subscribers, we not only survived, but grew. While we have always paid our authors, over the last two years we have raised our pay for original fiction to professional rates. Now we're asking listeners like you to help chip in so we can compensate all our content creators. We want you to have a stake in the world's longest-running horror fiction podcast. As part of this campaign, we're going to be raising the capital to pay our narrators for a number of years. Since the primary mission at Pseudopod is the promotion and preservation of the short horror fiction format, we want to assemble a companion anthology to celebrate what we've done over the last decade. This includes reprints of stories we've run as episodes of Pseudopod, as well as some original fiction from authors we've run a number of times. We are also working with the fine folks at Horror and Clay to produce a tiki mug that celebrates a decade with Pseudopod. Links will be in the show notes. Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the business at hand. The reason why you're here, and certainly the reason why we're here. The story brainstorm. And this doesn't happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding boldly to the slightly less comfortable writer's chair here at the roundtable. And friends, uh, when she isn't writing novels, our guest writer is an editor at IBM and works from her home in Quincy, Illinois. Uh, She's a news and history junkie, and her degree in both creative writing and in the classics and mythology has fueled a passion for the myths, culture, and beliefs of ancient Egypt. So potent is her passion for that mystical place, she spent several weeks in Egypt exploring the places in both of her novels. Uh, Previous publications include Next Services, a book of poems underwritten by the Illinois Arts Council, and individual poems published in literary journals. She was a writer-in-residence for the Poets in the Schools programs in both Illinois and Missouri. Her first novel, Queen of Hecca, the autobiography of the goddess Isis, is currently in the query stage. And her second novel, well, we're about to workshop that bad boy. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the roundtable, 
Michaelia Moore. Michaelia, it's never easy, ma'am. I know this because I've been in your shoes uh, uh, to step up and and share your baby with with even this august collection of literary luminaries. So so hats off to you, ma'am. Thank you so much for the cojones of of stepping up and sharing your story, ma'am. We appreciate it. Thank you, and I am. For me in my very hard chair. <laughs> <laughs> we like to keep you on the edge of your seat as that goes. It keeps you keeps you alert and focused on what's going on. Michael, I'm honestly I'm I'm very pumped. Let's just dive into this if that's okay with you. I would love to hear your story pitch. Uh, and and you know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. You give us the the title, the genre, your intended audience. Give us a tagline. Uh, explore the themes, the world. Introduce us to the characters. Give us the basic tent poles of a story, and we will brainstorm as we've never brainstormed before. Uh, ma'am, I'm getting out of the way. Michaelia, the mic is all yours. Thank you, Dave. Mm-hmm. Okay, my, sto- my novel is Reads of Time, and it's a historical fantasy with strong romantic elements in which a reincarnated Egyptian princess battles Al-Qaeda to right an ancient wrong, save her soul, and join her lover in the field of reeds, also known as paradise. It asks the question, I think, is love enough to buy you a do-over in this life or the next one, or does that require something else? It also explores something I haven't been able to quite articulate yet, but kind of runs around the themes of religion, politics, and female empowerment. So the world in which reeds of time takes place is actually two worlds. Ancient Egypt at the time of Ramses the Great and the Exodus, a world where magic and talking with gods, just, it just happens every day. It also takes place in modern Egypt in 1996-97. And although I intend to tell the story mainly from the modern character's point of view and use modern events as the backbone of the story, Right now, I'm anticipating interleaving the chapters with events in the ancient world that run parallel to events in the modern world. I have three main characters. My protagonist is one person in two bodies. The first person is Mesonet, an ancient Egyptian princess, and the second is Destiny or Desi Westfield, who's been haunted by dreams of ancient Egypt since childhood. Both come from a very privileged family background that doesn't particularly put any value on their daughter's intelligence or achievements. Desi's family in particular mocks her decision to pursue a career in Egyptology where jobs and money are scarce. And she secretly fears they might just be right and she's not worthy of anything except a boring life as somebody's spouse. And when faced with doubt, Desi usually capitulates or just does nothing. So for the first time ever, she just ignores her family and pursues her goal of working in Egypt. Um, the second character is Kem Wasset, Mesonet's husband and the fourth son of Ramses the Great. This is actually a real historical character and is sometimes called the world's greatest magician. And he only wants to do one thing. He wants to save the woman he loves from eternal obliteration. And he possesses the pieces of this mythical scroll of Toth, which supposedly contains all the knowledge in the universe. One of its spells allows him to wander between worlds, 
the world of the living and the dead, the past and the present, and mortals and gods. But 3,000 years have gone by since Messonet died, and he senses something big is about to happen, and he's running out of time. My antagonist is also one person in two bodies. In ancient Egypt, that person would be Amos, or Moses as we more commonly know him, the adopted nephew of Ramses and a hanger-on at court. And in modern Egypt, there's this fellow named Mohammed Tariq, an Egyptian engineer who's been boycotted from pursuing his profession because of his association with the Muslim Brotherhood. And they both harbor some very legitimate resentment against the government, um, which they believe has denied them their proper place in society. And they feel that if they destroy that government, they can both literally and symbolically reach the promised land. So they have these unshakable religious convictions that they believe support their worldview. But when push comes to shove, they sometimes wonder if that's enough or if it's even true what they believe. So the tent poles of the story, Dr. Desi Westfield makes the discovery of a lifetime in the Valley of Kings, the 3,000-year-old unopened tomb of the legendary Prince Kamwafet. Renowned Egyptologists say it rivals the discovery of King Tut, and it might bring her the kind of professional recognition people only dream about, not to mention one of those rare professorships in Egyptology from the prestigious university funding the dig. Before her team even files the paperwork to unseal the tomb, a man comes to her claiming he is Camwasset. He insists she's his wife, Messonet, who was executed unfairly for treason. And because at that time the gods usually destroyed the soul of a traitor for all eternity, he swears he used his magic to successfully persuade them to give her a chance to right this really horrible wrong. Obviously, he's crazy and Desi dismisses him. Yet he's also handsome and compelling, and she can't quite ignore the fact that he bears a striking resemblance to a man who saved her when she nearly drowned, a man nobody else has ever seen, by the way. Moreover, the things he tells her about Messonet correspond to the dreams and nightmares she's had since childhood, the ones that sparked her interest in Egyptology in the first place. But ignoring the hunch that the Camwasset imposter knows something, Desi focuses on the most important thing, opening and exploring that damn tomb that's going to establish her reputation. And in doing so, she uncovers a lot of secrets, one about the murder of Ramsey's firstborn son, and she discovers that the architect of the plot was Messonet's father, who joined forces with um, Amos. And she finds this tattered piece of papyrus that actually details the case presented against Messonet which basically comes down to Messonet knew about the plot and she stayed silent out of loyalty to her father. It confirms everything Cam Wasset told her. And all this time, Cam Wasset continues to whisper in her ear that time is running out. And she might pay more attention to his warnings if she could just ignore the romantic overtures of Tarek, who's kind of a too charming wannabe jihadi, or the machinations of the other Egyptologists who are eager to cash in on her discovery. Then Desi and Messonet's lives begin to converge. The 3,000-year-old murder plot finds a counterpart in present-day Egypt. Radical Islam grips the villages surrounding the Valley of the King, and 
the modern equivalent of biblical plagues confirm what Kem Wasset's been telling her. Tarek slips up and tells her he's about to go on jihad. And as Kem Wasset looks more and more credible, her affection for him is increasing all the time. So she faces this dilemma. Should she listen to him and inform the authorities or keep silent and protect Tarek while she tries to persuade him to follow a different path? And what if she does go to the authorities and it's, she's just wrong? Will it make her look like a crackpot and destroy her reputation? Desi does what Desi does best. She dithers. So when jihadists, including Tarek, attack the temple of Hashepset and begin killing tourists, Kamwasit's magic fails to stop them. Tarek must choose between his beliefs and his affection for Desi when she tries to save a group of the tourists. And Desi knows that the time for indecision is over. Love and magic can part the reeds of time, but how can she make a sacrifice of the greatest magnitude to save her soul and be reunited with Cam Wasset? There you have it, folks. Bam, there it is. Okay, excellent pitch. Well done, uh, Michael. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, Thank what you. are you hoping to get out of the next eh, 40 minutes or so of brainstorming that we'll be diving in on? So one of the things I want to know is, you know, does everybody think this story has legs? But if the, and if the story does have legs, you know, what are the, the shoes, the socks, and the pants you put on this place to make it really good? <laughs> and what cutlery do you put in its hands so it can sit at the table? Yes, yes, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> I think I should have said, does, does the story have arms and legs? <laughs> Okay, I think you have come to the right place for that, ma'am. Uh, I can guarantee you that everybody on this call is going to have a strong opinion about that and will certainly wax rhapsodic in sharing it with you. Um, but before we do that, we really kind of need to cover our ass. So, uh, Marie, would you be so kind? Why, certainly. Thank you. Michaelia. <laughs> yeah. You are about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspiration. Now, it's important that you realize that everything, and I mean everything, said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Kelly might be complete and utter bullshit. This is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside. Is that clear? Oh, yes. Oh, good. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always, I, I live in fear that somebody's going to say, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a short episode. <laughs> it's exactly, I got nothing to say. Awesome. We're we off all the hook. Up, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, all right, we're, we're going to dive into this. And we always dive in, uh, uh, starting off with a quick once around the table. This is just a very quick uh, uh, giving of first impressions of the story uh, and any questions that may have come up that, that aren't clear or that will help you understand better uh, uh, the story that Michael Leah is trying to tell. And we always start with our guest hosts. So, Kelly Robson, please start us off. What were yeah, your first so impressions and, and what questions do you have? This is really high stakes stuff, which is fantastic. We love stories with high stakes. Otherwise, why bother? Mm -hmm. um, the question that I have is, what exactly is Desi getting out of being a person in two bodies? Does she have, do powers come with that? Memories, insight? Is she changed by it at all? What? Not entirely sure 
what the story gets out of her being a person in two bodies when she could just be Desi. So that's that's a question for me. But uh, but really, I mean, it sounds great. It sounds like a really good time, and it sounds like a book that I would like to read. <laughs> Real quick, uh, Michael, do you have any ideas as far as Kelly's uh, consideration? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, we all drag baggage with us through our lives, right? Um, and in Desi's case, she's dragging a lot of baggage. She's dragging you know, 3,000 years of baggage. And I think the Messinet personality actually informs a lot of Desi's early actions. Um, and she has to grow past what is, I, you know, it, it could almost be like her subconscious talking to her and mm. saying, oh, don't do that. It's going to end badly. <laughs> back off, back <laughs> off. <laughs> okay. So I think that's the main thing. Okay, we can we can play with that. I think that, I think there's there's room to explore that uh, more deeply as we explore the character of Desi uh, in the context of the story. Anything else, Kelly? Any other any other thoughts or, or considerations before we move on? Hmm. If nothing jumped out at you, then then we can definitely put it on the back burner, and we'll 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 be revisiting all of this stuff very shortly. Yeah, um, it's a, a really really you know Egypt in that time this culture in that time and this time is really, really, really super complex. I am sure that you are more than capable of handling it with sensitivity. Is Desi black? No. No, she's mm. not. Okay. That's, people are going to be pissed off about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's a, big, it's a big thing in Egyptology. The thing is, Egyptians definitely weren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But they weren't black either. They, we have, you know, the tomb paintings where they compare different, different cultures, you know, and they have the Nubians, they have the Libyans, they have the people all around them, and they definitely make a distinction between themselves and other cultures. They possibly are the most racist society in the history of the world. <laughs> uh, but in the context of your protagonist, Michaelia, Kelly's point is, is well taken. And, and we can explore this further. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole just yet, but there, there's, a, there's a lot of issues of, of cultural appropriation and white privilege going around in, in the culture right now. And it's something to be aware of, I think. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, at this time, in 1996-97, I think you would be hard-pressed to find, just because of economics, many archaeologists, with the, out, you know, the exception of Zai Hawass, who aren't European or American. It really isn't a profession that most people aspire to because there are no jobs and no money. So, <laughs> so here, here's my thing. What we're talking about is a, uh, a fantasy novel where... Desi is a person in two bodies. We're already willing to suspend disbelief. I'm not sure that that adhering to that kind of realism regarding the culture, the birth culture of your um, of, of your main character, is necessarily a sticking point at that point. Mm-hmm. If we're willing sure. to accept the premise of your story, then I think we're also willing to accept uh, a certain amount of not particular realism. Well, in, and that uh, can introduce all levels of, of challenge and frustration for the protagonist, which is a good thing. Uh, 
that's an excellent point. Let's put a pin in that and and let's move on to Marie because th- these are all points that I think we're going to need to circle back to and address as we explore the character and the arc that they, they move through moving forward. Um, Marie, what are your first impressions and what questions do you have? My first first impression was, um, and I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, with the DC world, but this sounds a lot like the Shira Sanders Hawk Girl incarnation hmm. in DC, who's a reincarnated Egyptian princess, and her her lover uh, Carter is Carter Hall is a reincarnated uh, soul as well, and then they they always die before they get together. So, but it, it is a very very similar story to that DC. It's still got good bones. Like you definitely have some things that are very different. But I, maybe if you're not familiar with it, get enough to push away from it. Because as soon as I read it, it was like this is like a variation on Hawk Girl. And yeah, because, I haven't read it. <laughs> yeah, and because Hawk Girl was uh, brought back in the Arrow, the recent, it wouldn't care if it was still like Silver Age comics. Like you'd only have a few or. You know, a limited amount of people who will be aware of it but because she was brought back with Carter Hall in the new Arrow the Arrow series um, then it, it's something that is known to the, the pop culture it's a current phenomenon so I, I would be afraid that it, to me it was an immediate comparison and I'm sure it would be for a lot of people as well because it is pop culture um, so, but I think there's ways you can easily nudge it away from that if you just work around the away from uh, Egyptian princess or, or something. Because right now it's very. If you look at just even Wikipedia, you'll see you mimic a lot of the beats of, of that story, and just by happenstance, but because it is big right now, I, I just want you to be aware of it. And then I had one question when it comes to the protagonist uh, with Desi, because we don't have the full ending here, so I'm going to ask for a little bit of the spoiler but does she she doesn't sound like she takes a lot of decision points like you said she dithers a lot and it can make her a little bit a little bit difficult to be fully sympathetic to a very dithering uh, character but does she make a big decision at the end that helps to resolve the story or bring about the climax or does she take charge at some point she does take charge she actually confronts Tarek and he makes a decision that he's he's not going to go fully on jihad that he's going to try to save her. He shoots her in the leg, misses kind of the thigh, hits her in the femoral artery, and she does die. So he does something. Does she do anything besides die? Um, Well, she's gotten all of these tourists out, and she saved a bunch of lives in doing so. And then at the very end, she actually goes before Osiris, the judge of the dead, and pleads her case anew that, yes, she may have dithered, but now... Finally, when push comes to shove, she can make that decision, she, and she is worthy of redemption, really. Does that help, Marie? Okay. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I appreciate okay. that. Anything else? Other other first-round uh, first considerations? Uh, no, none that I can think of. I, I took a bit longer to think than the necessary. No, this was great. Thank you so much. I appreciate you laying it out. Awesome. Sure. Very cool. Um, for myself, uh, Michael, I... Uh, I will, I will first of all be honest, this is not my wheelhouse. Uh, uh, this, this is not a story that I would grab off the shelf. Uh, that said, uh, you know, oh, geez, I'm trying to remember. Deanna Gabaldon's? Uh, Deanna Gabaldon, yeah. Thank you, yes. Uh, the the Sassanac series also has this duality to it, and, and I think there's a lot of mileage to be gained from that uh, twining of ancient culture and contemporary culture. If nothing else, in the context of exploring the the, the foundations for culture, for uh, uh, 
the world's development and growth moving forward. So those those parallel lines, those are intriguing. I'm down with that. I have a, a number of questions and concerns. One of them is, you said in Desi's background that at some point she just ignores her family uh, uh, and goes to pursue archaeology. Why? Because she, you know, one, it's something she really wants to do. It is the first thing she's ever really wanted to do. So that's like her first big break with being Desi the Ditherer. Okay. But um, it was, it, there was, it was just, I really want to do this, so I'm just going to do it, boom, and she does it. Is that, is that what I'm reading? No, well, she, she ponders it a bit. And yes, I get, she, yes, she's a ditherer, got it. But, right. But there wasn't But like, in the end, she, and, and there are these dreams that a girl growing up in the Midwest, you know, don't usually have about right, right. ancient Egypt, right? Uh, and she feels that they mean something and that she's only going to find the meaning if, you know, she studies Egyptology and goes to Egypt and somehow everything will be revealed. Okay. And it is. Okay. <laughs> I, that, I, I get that. I think we can strengthen that. I think, I think that's one of, I think that's, that's, you know, I look for origin stories in my protagonists and, and that event I think probably needs a little more drama to it just than I decided to pursue Egyptology. I think there needs to be a fight. There needs to be a, a, a crisis, a, a something that that is her first step. And and honestly, there actually is, and I only alluded to it. Okay. The drowning occurred when she was a very small child, and she was she was rescued by this man that nobody sees, and and he's very different than everybody else. And so she goes to the library and looks him up, and she realizes that. He's from this ancient world, and that's sort of the impetus for her, and that's when all the dreams begin as well. Okay. I guess, I guess my, my point is, is that these are things that are happening to her, and, and the mm-hmm. things that she does in response, you know, I, I do research, oh, that, how interesting, he's actually is someone from the past. That's weird. But then what does she do? And, and the, the, the issue of agency uh, with Desi, I think, is, is a strong, at least for me. Um, yeah, right. And and I think we need to explore more of that. I do have a couple other quick points, and then we can dive into this thing. Um, I am concerned about the fact that one of your antagonists is one of the primary religious figures of the most prominent religion in the world, uh, i.e. Moses, uh, is a bad I- guy, and also that you're invoking Al-Qaeda and terrorism. Um, I am concerned. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying that in doing so uh, and by invoking Muslim faith, especially in the charged environment that we're working in, you need to be very, I don't even want to say careful. I think you need to be diligent. You need to be very clear about the reasons why they're here and what you're going to be portraying about them. Uh, uh, Because essentially we're kind of, this is kind of, it's it's not a romantic paranormal romance per se, but romance plays a strong part of it. I'm not saying that terrorism and Al-Qaeda and, and religion can't factor into that, but I'd be concerned about people thinking that you're take, making light and using as a plot device one of the most divisive and, and politically and culturally charged issues uh, confronting us in modern day. And I, I'm, we can explore that in greater depth. I just want to put that on the table. Um, yeah, I mean, it is one of the reasons why Tarek is actually a, a very sympathetic character. I mean, I absolutely believe that that adage that 
one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist, and vice versa. And, and I think in the context of this story, if you like, look at it from the point of view of Egyptians, Moses was definitely a terrorist. Okay. Well, and the thing um, is, is that that concept, that foundation right there, that could be the foundation for a book. Uh, having right. it be uh, uh, an aspect, and and honestly, a, a, a plot mass aspect, almost a MacGuffin aspect of the story that you're trying to tell, I think that might be a problem, unless the story alters in some way to to make it a centerpiece, a cornerstone of the story. And I, again, the the complete bullshit line is completely up at this point. That flag is flying high. Uh, I might be wrong, but I just that's something I want to explore later as we get deeper into the brainstorm. The 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 rest of these things we can we can deal with later. I want to get into this, Kelly. Where where do you want to start with this? Uh, uh, I think I think we've seen that Desi needs some needs some love, some writerly love, uh, and there are some plot elements that need to be uh, uh, tightened, f- drilled down, something. Where do you want to start with this? Yeah, well, got two things. First character and then or first problem and then character. And I thank you, Dave, for for bringing up the. The, um, the touchy political aspect of this, because that was something that was a monstrous red flag for me, too, but I had absolutely no idea how to articulate it without, you know, <laughs> babbling and throwing my arms around for, an, a, you know, two hours trying to trying to be coherent. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to be coherent here. Okay, so here, I'm going to tell you, bullshit flag flying very high. Here's how to solve this problem. Set this story in the future. Set it in a future where there is peace in the Middle East and make the central problem not Al-Qaeda, but the central problem can be a recurrence or, or a, a re, um, resurgence or, uh, a, a resurgence of violence and war in the Middle East. Now that's high stakes because we have peace and somebody wants to bring about war again. That's, that's, that's inspired. Or, I like that. Because yeah. that also gives you the opportunity to to explore how did there how did we get peace how did we achieve peace in the Middle East and yeah. and and that's what do you think about that, Michaelia? Well, it has some interest for me because, as it turns out, I know far less about 1997 than I do about 1250 BC. <laughs> so projecting <laughs> it forward in the spending. future will give you that opportunity to speculate moving forward. Right. Well, that's right. And, and these these past societies, they were not uh, monocultures. They were not at all monocultures. They were they were patchwork cultures. The borders of these these empires were not nearly as large as we think they were there you know you people would be speaking a different language practically from village to village to village mm-hmm. so so that one, is true of most ancient cultures it is not particularly true of ancient egypt i mean it is like the ultimate monoculture for 3,000 years, they pretty much spoke the same language. I mean, well, but and they had... The ruling class did, but yeah. the rest of the people didn't. Well, and we're also dealing with a larger... I mean, Egypt is definitely the... The, 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 the jewel within the crown you're painting, Michaelia, but Egypt does not yeah. exist in a vacuum. And and acknowledging the, the other cultures and the outer uh, uh, influences that impacted on Egypt, I think would probably enhance the authenticity of the presentation in the story, yeah? Maybe. Uh, so sometimes, you know, you got to 
you got to forgive when my research side takes over. <laughs> we do. We absolutely forgive. But you got to yeah, forgive us when we say, but the story is the thing. The research right. takes a back seat and is in service to a good story. It is. You know, this is a country that's surrounded on one side by ocean and three sides by sand and a lot of sand. And there really wasn't a lot of influence that came in. I mean, you really don't see things change all that much. No, but they did trade. There was huge trade in the Mediterranean. Right, which is right. an influx of ideas and cultures, and and I would imagine Alexandria was a freaking melting pot because everybody wanted to get Alexandria Egyptian stuff. Alexandria didn't ex- exist at the time. Okay, well, all right, whatever, whatever the so main what trade port was. What we're talking about is this strip down the middle of Egypt, right along the Nile River. Well, what we're what we're trying to achieve here, yeah. Michaelia, is to find a location that is volatile, that is right. dynamic. Uh, and I would imagine the port city of Egypt in that time was that place where conflicting uh, uh, cultures and ideas and influences took place right there on the street because you had Romans and you had you know other people. And again, I'm if I'm historically inaccurate, just just shut, shake there, your head and nod. That's fine. But okay. There were the Hebrews too, right? Because you already make reference to the Moses story, right, so exactly. you already have that that clash of cultures and that obvious going out there to uh, get other people to to have that trade in there so you already make reference Let's, in a very strong way to that clash of culture the thing that i'm trying to get to about this idea of it not being a monoculture is the idea that peace in the middle east will happen when it's not when people aren't trying to to assert monocultures over the whole area right ah. where where we as human beings all over the earth respect the fact that our neighbors are not like us, and that's okay. So that that's where I'm trying to get to with with this right. idea of monoculture ver- versus you know a patchwork of cultures all over the world. And that so, actually, uh, I I, I want to actually bring it over to Marie and get her wrap because I'm liking this this projecting into the future, uh, uh, and 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 finding that Kelly, as you described that that how we can uh, uh, stop imposing that that monoculture requirement upon a culture that isn't built that way. Marie, are you are you vibing on this setting the, the, the main story in the future thing? I am vibing on it. And I love the idea, too, of looking at it, um, having kind of a more peaceful setup. And I, I think even in a way, because um, I, I like your setup, I mean, you start in, in Ramses II's time. Um, so even if you have something that restarts the conflict that is similar to something like the Battle of Kadesh, which was Syrian, right? So even if you do something that mimics that very that very historical that took place in that time then you're you're also adding some layers of symbolism into your story from past to future skipping over our time entirely because our time we're here it's it's less fun so i love the idea of putting it into the future and marie billado throws down some history damn nice Nice. And I did Near Eastern archaeology too, so I <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> Very cool. See, this is the perfect bird brainstorming ensemble for this. Um, uh, well, the Battle of Kadesh does actually have some relevance to the story. Well, that's perfect then, cool. and I mean it's it's a huge it's a huge symbolic thing. So it would it would be neat to see what you could weave into it into a future arc as well. Agreed. Agreed. 
Kelly, uh, that was the problem that you put out there, and I, I think your solution is is inspired and and opens up a lot of story doors. Uh, uh, what what was the uh, the character theme that you wanted to tuck in on? Okay, so here we've got a big problem with Desi, and the big problem is that damn dithering. That is not okay. Yeah. Uh, we, we cannot have a main <laughs> character whose main problem is just that she can't make a damn decision. The only person that works for is Hamlet. <laughs> That's right. Especially when he's David Tennant. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> exactly. So, so Desi, Desi's going to have to, again, bullshit meter is flying don't necessarily listen to me but desi has to change she has to be a slightly different person than the person that she she is right now and one of those one of the reasons why she has to change is she has she got her phd now yes yeah she does you don't get a phd in archaeology you don't get to run this kind of huge archaeological dig without being a really forceful ceo type person who makes things the fuck happen. Um, so she isn't actually running the dig. I would just like to put that out there. Okay. She is actually working under another Egyptologist. She's just the one who discovers this particular tomb. Okay. That's cool. Um, if if you want her to be a less forceful kind of person, but not a ditherer, you know, maybe a dreamer or something like that, um, it's possible that she doesn't actually need to be an Egyptologist. She could be an Egypt fan, right? And we know that um, a lot of archaeology digs simply couldn't happen without volunteer work. Right. She could be young. She could be a student. She could be in a master's degree program. She could be doing the degree that her parents want her to be doing. But she's taken the summer off to pursue her dream. She has volunteered to go to Egypt and work on this dig. That's just, that seems to me more dynamic, but I'm going to secede the floor now and, and let people <laughs> no, actual. I like it. I like it. I, I have similar mm-hmm. ideas, but I want to hear from Marie. Marie, what are you thinking for Desi? Uh, I agree. Like a character with a little bit of uh, it, what more agencies definitely helps. When I wrote my one of my first novels, uh, which eventually turned into Destiny's Blood, uh, I realized at the end of it that I had a character very similar to yours, and I wanted the arc to be very similar to yours, where she would gain some agency by the end, but it's not a good story, because I realized that if I took my main character and basically turned her into a sack of potatoes, and I wrote the same story, the story would pretty much stay the same, with the sack of potato falling out the right place at the right time to trip the right person. <laughs> um, so, uh, so with Destiny right now, she is a bit of a sack of potatoes character, where you're using one moment to show a redemption for lifetime time ago that happened 3,000 years or or however many years by the time you write this ago Um, but instead you could have a character through her life who could showcase that she had agency and she had changed Uh, and also if she just stumbled on the tomb the Egyptologist in charge of the um of the site, the dig site would more than likely get the recognition for the, the discovery anyways, because they were in charge. So what does she, what does Desi want? Like, I'm still not super clear on what she wants in the length of the story. Like, is she just looking for answers for dreams? Cause that's, I mean, especially if you've told us she was saved in a drowning, a guy looked ancient Egyptian and then the dream started afterwards. Well, it could have just been triggered by this association. Right. So right. like, like what, what does she want in the story? Just as an, one driving force for her. So one thing she wants is to be recognized for her talent. She has a talent. You know, the other thing she very much wants, which I think is possibly her conflict with Cam Wassett, 
is she doesn't just want to be known as someone's spouse, which is pretty much the life that she had in ancient Egypt, but the life her family in you know modern day times pretty much wants for her to have as well. Right. Okay. Well, let me let me just talk back the basic arc of the story as I understand it. She finds the tomb of Kamrasat on her own. Rasat appears to her and gives her an info dump that she's actually the reincarnated ancient princess of uh, Mensinet. Then she goes ahead and opens the tomb and finds the murder information. And then there's this, nothing seems to be happening. There's the, the we, we, until we get to the, the attack on the temple where she saves a bunch of people and then dies. Um, it's just, there's the, the progression of definable goals and, and the try fail cycle. What is she trying for? She's trying for professional, uh, uh, accreditation. That's cool, but this is, this is a speculative, uh, uh, story. I, I think the stakes need to be a little higher. I can see the value of, of professional, you know, that's a per- per- perfectly valid motivation. I'm not sure it's enough for the story. Kelly Marie, help me out here. Am I, am I off base or, or do we need to, do we need to dig in a little bit? Yeah. I, well, so there are the, you know, there are things that happen during those 10 plagues. Okay, so there are ten plagues. So, so in the opening of the tomb, it has unleashed a, a, a biblical horror upon the world. The tomb, not so much. At, more as she starts finding out these things, she may actually be the inciting incident for some of these plagues. Mm. And she's certainly helpful in, or she certainly does her part in resolving them, although, in fact, they do open up the conditions for yet another, you know. That's interesting. That kind of sounds like the labors of Hercules almost. That's very cool. I kind of like that. Actually, mm-hmm, me too. Uh, you know, and and have it. You know, and there's also a Pandora aspect there that in pursuing this dream, uh, uh, she you know, and opening the tomb. Maybe she opens the tomb without authorization. You know, maybe you know she she finds the tomb. She goes back and says, "Hey, I found this tomb." And they're saying, "Yeah, yeah, little girl, whatever. Uh, uh, we'll get to your thing later." It's like, well, screw you. I'm going to go open the tomb myself and bring you a freaking artifact and say, "Deal with this, motherfucker." And in doing so. <laughs> Uh, un- unleashes uh, a, a, a plague upon the land, a resonance that is set up by by Cam Rossett's moving between the worlds because he violated the law of, of, of linear time by v- stepping forward. He's actually opened a portal and this, this the, the, the plagues of biblical times are raining down. In fact, those plagues might threaten to tear apart the very fabric of existence and it might be those plagues then that actually inspire uh, uh, Tarek in this future time, if we're going with Kelly's line, that's, that, that open up the possibility that we must uh, rise up against this, this imposed peace that has brought mm-hmm. upon us. If that peace is, is manufactured uh, uh, and, and forced, then you have a very sympathetic rebellion, at which point Desi kind of needs to side with Tarek. Tarek isn't the bad guy. He's the good guy. He's looking mm-hmm. for authentic peace rather than this imposed white man's mm-hmm. peace upon mm-hmm. an era that we have traditionally been trying to impose imperialistic bullshit on since since oil was discovered. God, I'm ranting. Holy crap. I like that. I like that. <laughs> that is nice. That is really meaty. Yeah, it is. What do you yeah. think, Michaelia? I yeah, I mean I think 
I have I have envisioned some of that already. Just you know, not in seven minutes. <laughs> um, it, it didn't make the seven minute version. <laughs> right, 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 right. Actually, I intend to make Moses sympathetic too. You know, like I said, there is this dichotomy, and every antagonist is actually the hero of their own story. Sure, but but Desi is the vehicle through which this story is told. So the themes right. that you're that you want to explore the theme, and, and again we've kind of imposed some of those on you by by with with Kelly's I think excellent suggestion of projecting forward. So we de uh, uh, volatilize, sure, that's a word, uh, some of the, the themes of terrorism and Al-Qaeda uh, uh, and put it into a speculative framework where you're free to explore uh, uh, faithfully and with you know respect these themes. In doing so, then those themes of, of false peace, of, of true peace, of, of cultural authenticity, uh, those themes must be embodied or reflected very powerfully uh, uh, and, and in, in, in your protagonists so that they become a good vehicle. As Kelly pointed out during the 20 Minutes With, you have a problem. Who's the worst person to have this problem? If you have a character, what is the worst problem for this character to have? Uh, uh, and making sure that it, you have Desi. So what is the worst problem? And I'm not sure you've got there yet, Michael. I'm not sure what you've laid out so far is the worst problem that literally is going to drive Desi to distraction and to agency and to yeah, affect change. Yeah, what's the worst change. thing that can happen to her? Yeah, what is in your estimation, Michael? What's the worst thing that can happen to Desi? I think for her, the worst thing that can happen is that she would fail and prove everybody's been right for the last 3,000 years, um, that she's worthless. That's more of a fear, though, than a happenstance. Like, well, is there something... What is the worst... Yeah, we, well, we were asking what was the worst thing that could happen, and, and that would be your greatest fear, to be proven worthless. Mm. But yeah. uh, uh, then... And, and that's... Okay, so let's build on that, then. So if her greatest fear is to be proven worthless, then the stakes for that need to be as high as humanly possible. And because you're working in a speculative framework, we can create stakes like the causality of time and space and put that on the table as a possible stake uh, uh, for what's going on. But, and, and I'm not articulating this well, it doesn't feel like she's at the center of that storm, Michaelia. Uh, uh, and again, I understand that the confines of the seven, eight minute restriction of the pitch, but the, the sense of that storm, the sense of those stakes of that storm, and and the the what's at stake for Michaelia and the world uh, uh, is is we're, I think we're still trying to find out what that is. Uh, Marie, are, are you feeling that too? Yeah, it's it's feeling a little bit loose on that end, and uh, but it, it might just be because, like you said, the seven to eight minutes. But the plagues feel a little bit like like they're not really part of the story. They're just a nice add-on to the story. They're an interesting part of it, but the beats of the story don't actually tap the action and and the reaction, or the the proaction. The proaction. <laughs> there be you positive go. here. Yes, the proaction. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm I'm feeling a little bit of that disconnect as well when so, it comes to the two. So in that context, cool. then Kelly, um, uh, identifying first, if if you agree that that we we need to move. Desi more more firmly into the center. Any any ideas or suggestions on how we might do that? What is so interesting to you about Desi 
what intrigues you about her? Why is she fascinating to you? Um, and why should I be fascinated by her? I, I want to know what is what is extraordinary about her. When we have characters, usually for us to care about them, they just have to have one thing. They need to be smart or funny or skilled. nice. Nice. Oh yeah, or skilled. Right. So I, I would just, I want I, I would say just delve into the one thing about Desi that should make us give a shit about her story and, and, and milk the crap out of that. Okay, and I think it is her determination. Then that the needs determination, to be but she's a ditherer. She that is a ditherer in many respects, but she's also determined to overcome that. Okay, well, what I'm, what I'm saying is that's not enough. Yeah, you, you're, you're basically mixing oil and water into a character and hoping that it will, it will gel. You, you, you have two diametrically opposed... Uh, uh, instincts, Michael. You've got determination and dithering, and that fusion. Which I, I think, feel pretty much covers my role in life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and we feel you. <laughs> we totally feel you. Um, and and you know, we, a lot of our characters are, are the way we kind of work through that for ourselves personally. I think as as writers, but I, I think what the what the panel, <laughs> if, if that is indeed what we are, is trying to say, is that. Uh, in, in incorporating both of those qualities, what you've basically done is created a zero sum. You've yeah. neutralized any okay. excitement or investment that any of us have with this character by trying to make her a ditherer and a determined person. I, I really think she needs to be a determined person. Uh, I think she can have fear. She can have concern. She can have stark terror every time she steps forward. But there needs to be something in her soul that I can get behind that drives her to go beyond that fear, to not be ruled by that fear, to not dither, and to go out and seize and do the things that she knows she must do. So that's, 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 yeah. Mm. All right, guys. I can be really, really super duper prescriptive and say, yeah, smart, funny, or nice. Mm-hmm. Pick one and start there, and and see where it takes you. We're not saying you have to stick with that, but but seriously, I, I think Desi needs some love. She needs some writerly attention, some character structuring and and experimentation. So as Kelly says, try latching one of those qualities onto her, and and seeing how the scenes that you write and the scenes that you work with evolve. It might mean those scenes are, are crap, uh, uh, but it, it's an exploration and understanding of Desi that will, will be elevated in your own mind so that when you are ready to move forward with that, a, a, an authentic character, then you're moving forward and have a solid character foundation to build on. Guys, I'm watching the clock and it's ticking down. Uh, we kind of need to move into that final phase of the round table, which is one last once more around the table, uh, uh, where we can impart some final thoughts. Some, you know, through this discussion, we've identified many of the themes and ideas, and, and put forth some concepts in there. Give Michael Leah some final words of wisdom, some suggestions, advice, ideas you didn't get to put out during the brainstorm. Fill her pockets with literary gold, uh, uh, so that you can go <laughs> off and 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 explore this this wonderful tale that. It clearly means a lot to her uh, uh, and, and should mean a lot to the readers as well. Kelly Robson, start us off. What are your final thoughts for Michael Leah so she can go off and write this awesome tale? Here's This This advice is not from me. This advice is from T.S. Eliot hmm. from a 
essay called Hamlet and His Problems, which just Google it, it'll come right up, Hamlet and His Problems. Uh, and it is about Hamlet and why Hamlet as a character, that ditherer, that er-ditherer of our, <laughs> of, of, of our Western canon, why that particular character is both fascinating and a bit of a problem. For the writer, um, ha- nobody will uh, will doubt that Hamlet is a great story, but it also is a story about a ditherer. I think that if you take this essay to heart, that maybe you might find a way to express Desi's character in a way that is super satisfying. So there's there's my little piece of gold. That is a, a lovely nugget cool. of gold, and I want to read that thing too now. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you, Kelly. Marie, what about you? Final thoughts for Michaelia? Yeah, I think I think you've got a good premise here, and it obviously means a lot to you, which which gives it power. It will give it power, which is great. Um, I would I, I would just try to push it as much as you can to take it out of something that is. Um, is a little bit more seen already, which is what you have right now, but, but by pushing it even in the future, by by changing a little bit of the scope, by changing your character a little bit, then you're going to explode it into something that is, that is unique and will really stand out in the market. Uh, and uh, I, I think that will really, really help it. I would check out just so that you know where your lines intersect with Hot Girl, just so that you okay. can break away from those. Um, because right now they're, they're just too close and I'm afraid it will reflect on your story and not let it shine the great glow that I think it will once you've had all your fun with it. <laughs> good advice. Good advice. Excellent. And it's always good to get a, a, another perspective on a a, a, a similar story uh, mm-hmm. and see what oh, themes absolutely. and aspects they've, they've explored and see if they did it well, if you can do it better, or if you want to avoid them altogether. That's excellent advice. Exactly. Cool. Um, for myself, uh, Michael, I'm, I'm going to invite you to look at the world and the events uh, that are happening around Desi. Honestly, Kelly's invocation of Hamlet has got me thinking, why is Hamlet so damn good? Uh, Because really, Hamlet is a ditherer. Um, Why does it work? And it works because Hamlet's dithering is constantly challenged. Uh, uh, with the ghost, with uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, with uh, uh, with the the events that are happening around him, uh, uh, that is challenged and tested, and he he pushes through it. He kills Polonius. Spoilers. Um, he, uh, he he stages this big play that's going to you know reveal the truth. He does things. You know he may be a ditherer, ditherer but he's an active. He's a ditherer with agency, uh, uh, and he's he has questions and he has concerns. Uh, I think we need to know what Desi's questions are. What are her concerns? Where did this fear of being somebody's wife and being construed as a failure come from? Because apparently her background of privilege, uh, uh, she was groomed from the beginning to be somebody's wife. Uh, now, if it's Messinet's influence that's pushing her out of that, that's not good because that's not... Desi's agency. That's some action influencing Desi to be someone that she technically isn't. And I think that's the biggest problem, is that if if Messinet's influence is basically making Desi uncomfortable, then that's because Desi wants to be a wife, 
or she doesn't want this responsibility. If if Desi's desires come from Messinet, then Desi's not a good character. We need to have Desi be someone who doesn't like Messinet, who, who is fighting against Messinet, and even fighting against, I think, Kamrasat, the, the, the great wizard. You know, he's here to save you. Well, screw you. I don't need you to save me. I'm doing just fine. Uh, uh, that's another aspect that kind of just now occurred to me. Uh, uh, that Desi is relying upon the help of a great many people to achieve these things. And I really want to see Desi not need anyone's help, or if she does, that she asks for it. Uh, and she knows why. I mean, there's there's strength in asking for help if you understand your limitations. And creating a character who understands their limitations is very powerful. And right now, it seems like Desi's spending a lot of time trying to figure out what those are. I'm Again, I'm rambling. Holy crap, this is Dave's rambling episode. Holy crap. Uh, uh, but, but setting... Okay. Yeah, really. Look, 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 at, look at the environment and the events that are happening. Look at how Desi engages with them and give her, give her her power within those events. Even if it's asking for help, uh, don't have it be forced upon her. Uh, she needs to resolve this thing, whatever this thing is, and, and give her the power to do that. Okay, all right, enough blather. Jeez Louise. Um, uh, clearly, there's there's a lot of passion involved in this story, Michael Elias. So you're, 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 you've, your initial question, is there a story here? Definitely. I think you've got that. Now, now here's the deal. Um, you, you write this story, okay? However it comes out, and you put it out there in any number of ways, but get it into the world. And when you do, ma'am, we will bring you back. We will actually turn on the time machine. We will take you back to ancient Egypt, and we will knight you with a Kopesh. I think that's the name of the thing. <laughs> we will make you a Knight of the Round Table podcast. Are you down with that? I'm down with that. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Well, like I say, Michael, this level of conversation and passion and discourse doesn't happen with, with, a, with a, a flat and uninteresting story. So you've done an excellent job of, of finding a good story bunny to pursue. Chase that down the rabbit hole. Thank you so much for giving us such wonderful food for our brainstorm, ma'am. Well, thank you for giving me some new ideas on it. Absolutely. That's that's our job, ma'am. That's our job. We ride off into the sunset now. So, <laughs> Kelly Robson, thank you, ma'am, as always. Uh, uh, it's, 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 it's wonderful to have people who have deeply uh, invested in their craft and bringing those sensibilities, those perspectives, that experience to these conversations, and you definitely achieved that in, in, in great abundance. We're so very grateful, ma'am. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I love talking about story, so I will do this anytime. <laughs> uh, we had that on tape, so <laughs> bring Kelly Robson back. It will happen. Very cool. And and Marie Billadell, honestly, having you as co-host is like having a second guest host. Uh, your your street cred, your your experience, your background, your canon of of work in the field really kind of qualifies. We should probably have you on as a guest host at some point, just to just to really seal that. Deal. But as always, I'm grateful to have you in the co-host chair, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. You're so sweet. I really love it. And if ever you do want me in as a guest host, I also want to be co-host on that episode. Just <laughs> you want to, to you want to be a split personality. You want to ask yourself questions and then answer them. Is that it? <laughs> Very cool. Um, 
Friends, thank you, as always, for tuning in. You complete the cycle for us. That's why we record these things and put them out there so you guys can have this in your heads, inspiring and sparking new ideas and new perspectives on your craft. Uh, If you're digging it, you're feeling the love, pay it forward, blog about it, share a Facebook post, tweet, anything. Let people know about the roundtable. It's badassery. You know it. They need to know it. So spread the word. And holy crap. Again, I, I cranked down the AC and still the room is like 15 degrees hotter. I think it's because I'm flailing. I am literally, my arms are flailing around, so I'm generating heat. Uh, but uh, uh, here's the deal. In 14 days, in two weeks, we're back. We're back with another awesome guest host pouring wisdom in our ears, another courageous guest writer giving us story concepts to brainstorm and explore. The round table continues, and that's 14 days, and that's a long damn time. Uh, Marie, I don't know if, if, if your Skype line is going to hold out, but can you tell us any ideas on how we can get through 14 days real quick? Real quick, 300 words a day. Bam, there you go, 300 words a day. See, that's attainable. You know, with, and, and Nano is, is already uh, uh, gearing up here in, in full swing. So it, 300 words a day, that's a fraction of the 1673, I think, that you need uh, to achieve 50,000 words. But 300 a day is 300 steps towards a story that you will write. That's badass. I love that. And, and I will tell you. F- fun. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. Look for that awesomeness. Look for the top shelf blue label goodness, the the lost package at the back of the Christmas tree. Look for these things in your life and you will find them. We'll be back in 14 days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.